Um, this morning we're starting a new series. Yay. Yeah, we like new series. Um, and we're going to be t- spending the rest of our year basically leading us into uh, the Christmas season, looking specifically at all of the stories that Jesus told. And we're going to be highlighting uh, specific ones, um, and they're called parables. So sometimes when we talk about parables, we're really just talking about stories. And Jesus told a lot of stories. He told stories all the time. Everywhere he was, he told stories. And often he did it when big crowds would gather and he would take that opportunity to tell really important stories. And when we think about what we remember about Jesus the most, or maybe some of the things that we know about Jesus, many of his most remembered teachings are actually stories. Not sermons, not kind of expository teachings, but actually stories. Um, But parables aren't to be pitted against doctrine and teaching because Jesus preaches and teaches a lot as well. And so what we see Jesus doing with story is he takes doctrine and and what he's doing with his message and he intentionally distills it down into stories and illustrations that give you and I a mental picture so that we're able to understand what his message is and what the call to follow him actually looks like. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to take some time over the next seven weeks and look specifically at some of the most either like perplexing parables or some of the most well-known ones. Um, And the reason why this is significant and we talk about this a lot as a church, and I kind of keep this in front of you. Um, this is really important because you and I are all story-shaped creatures. That we all live story-formed lives. We actually don't even know how to live life that means anything at all without telling stories to insulate and kind of backfill the, why we do what we do. The morals and the values that we live for, the reasons why we do anything at all. If you do enough introspection and searching, there's a story behind that as to why you landed where you did. Uh, Famed psychologist today, Jonathan Haidt, says that the human mind is a story processor, not a logical processor. That's not from a believer, that's just at a psychological level, that there's something that happens in the human imagination that actually tells stories in order to make sense of things. That our life is actually informed more by the stories we tell than the beliefs that we hold. And that's very significant. Because that now just evens the playing field for all of us, regardless of where we are on religion, regardless of what we even think about Jesus and the stories he told, the reality is that all of us are story formed. Meaning that the decisions that you make week in and week out are informed by a foundational story that drives everything that you do. A meta-narrative is why you do what you do. It's what gives you meaning. It's what gives you purpose. It's what gives you energy to move towards whatever you have deemed worthy of your life. And the stories we tell provide the mental map for our decision making. And some people call it a worldview, right? We all have answers to questions about like, well, what what should I live for? What went wrong? What's the solution to those things that went wrong? Those are all things that when we sit and, and actually reflect on those questions, we answer those things not with just logic. We answer those things with story. We answer those things with, with, with stories. And that's what provides value. And just as I thought about this this week as I prepared, I, I, I wanted to pay attention to some of the scripts that we read in our culture today. Some of the stories that we are told so that those kind of provide the context for us as we go in to understand the parables that Jesus told. Today we're shaped by all sorts of different secular scripts. Uh, one example would be the story of achievement. And if you just work hard, you'll make it. If you work hard, you'll be somebody. You'll get influence, you'll get status, you'll get stuff, whatever it is that, that there's this hustle about cultures. Like you gotta go get yours, that, that's it. That's when you'll be meaningful. That's when life will be worth living. That's a story, that's a script that calls us as a character into the script to go live for those things. 
Uh, James K. Smith, theologian, says that we've traded the hope for immortality for going viral. <laughs> I love that. It's like, like all, all, all kind of search for transcendence has just been replaced by a story of achievement and accomplishment. And if we just accomplish enough and just achieve enough, we will be realized. We'll be someone. A second example of these stories is the story of consumerism. Uh, if you have this, fill in the blank, if you have that, if you have this house, live in this neighborhood, have this car, have, have this phone, have this fashion sense, you'll be satisfied, you'll be somebody. This is an identity-shaping story that we're told. The American dream, the Western dream. Just get the right car, get, get the right house, get the right things, and those things will validate you. They will fulfill you. That's a story. It's a story that the good life comes with a price tag, and you got to pay that price tag to live the good life. Another example would be the story of beauty, that your identity is how you look, that you are valued based on how you look. So just continue to improve physical attractiveness, attention, being noticed by others, decreasing wrinkles, fighting male pattern baldness, whatever it is, that if you just do those things, then you will be satisfied and accepted and validated. And we could keep going, right? You could go on and on about stories. Another one, last, is the story of romance. That loneliness, that sense of, of, of being someone and being accepted and loved and fully known, that the answer to that is, is found in someone else. It's found in love. It's found in a soulmate. It's found in that person to complete you. You're going to find yourself in your relationship with another person. That's the story of, of romance. And these are just a few examples of some of the scripts that come at us, and they come at us through the cultural teleprompter of everything that we experience day to day in our life. Every kind of media that comes at us shapes us via story. And I'll tell you, I think this is exactly why Jesus tells so many stories. I mean, he's the storytelling God. He's the story writing God. And if you remember when we did our scripture series in the summer, bi the Bible is made up of what? Mostly story. And now that's, that's really significant because the Bible isn't just an instruction manual full of logical syllogisms. It's actually story that doesn't just inform our mind, but it invites us into a lived experience of the storytelling God. And I think that's why when Jesus shows up on the scene and makes the claims that he does, that he tells so many stories. He doesn't just want to drop mental and logical things into our head and call that discipleship. He actually wants to stoke up our imagination. He wants to invite us into a lived experience because life is found in him. And so he tells a story of true life, that the gospel is the story of reality. It's the story of everything as it's meant to be. And Jesus comes and tells stories so that he gives us mental pictures of what that looks like and how you and I are invited into that story. Uh, C.S. Lewis was huge on this. C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and his other fantasy because he saw that the adults in his age forgot how to use their imagination. They forgot to be, how to be captured in the beauty of who God is because, again, as an Oxford professor, he's just walking, just walking around seeing people with intellects with skin on, right? There's no joy. There's no celebration. There's no imagination anymore. And I saw something this week. He said, we need a strong spell to wake us of the evil enchantment that worldliness has put us in. And I think that's why Jesus tells so many stories. That there will be another story that shapes you, religious or not. Regardless of where you are 
even on Jesus' stories and the, and the things that he says and teaches and tells, that you will be shaped by a story. The only choice that we have is what story we're going to willingly enter into. And so this is gonna spark imagination. We're gonna do a lot of teaching over the series, but this series is really gonna get at these parables and it's gonna to try to not just understand them as stories, we're gonna to try to understand them as invitations of a lived experience with the God behind those stories. All right, are you excited? Yeah, same. So what are parables? Well, simply, parables are just short stories, simple short stories that are used to invite Jesus' hearers into an experience of the kingdom of God. Almost every single one of his parables have something backfilled into it that invite us into the rule and reign of God. It is always and only about the kingdom of God. And that goes against the rule and reign of other things and other, other desires. So it's just like, well, my self-autonomous thing, I'm gonna rule and reign, I'm gonna do me, I'm gonna live my truth. It's like, well, Jesus enters that and then tells stories to invite us to not do that. There's actually something culturally really important there. Um, some commentators call it a prophetic imagination that Jesus was doing there. Isaiah does it a lot. Isaiah was kind of like the, the Old Testament, like savvy one on the prophetic imagination that, that Isaiah would actually speak to the imagination of his hearers, not just to form them with information, but to actually invite them into a lived experience, right? And so there's so two things that we look at generally before we jump into our first parable today. First, and I mentioned this briefly, but it's important, that parables are not opposed to teaching and preaching. The reason why this is important to state is because there's lots of churches in the West today actually trying to get rid of preaching. They're trying to get rid of this, like opening the Bible and going through expositors. So I'm like, I'm like a rare breed, especially as a young pastor who thinks that this is a good, good idea. A lot of churches just wanna, just wanna be in a circle and share. Right, let's, let's share. How do you feel? How do we feel? How do we all feel, right? Like it's like, no, no, but, but like there's, there's a bi real biblical precedent for faithful teaching and preaching and proclamation of what God says to be true. And that there's actually like a promise that will be blessed if we sit under good faithful preaching. And so this isn't supposed to be, oh, Jesus told so many stories, therefore let's get rid of preaching. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the Sermon of the Plains. There's sermons everywhere throughout, throughout the Gospels too. Jesus uses both of those methods to try to bring about one thing, and that is what is true about him. Okay, so it's important to lean into that and realize that what Jesus is gonna do with the parables is not something different than doctrine. It's not something different than right teaching. It's that he's using story as the, way, the delivery system for what he is saying is true. Make sense? Okay, and secondly... The parables are always intentionally paradoxical. They cut both ways on purpose. The parables always reveal something and conceal something at the exact same time. Jesus' parables are intentionally paradoxical in that it makes his message accessible to people it normally wouldn't be, and it makes it inaccessible to the people who think they should know it. So it reveals it to the tax collectors and the sinners and the outcasts and the ones that really, it's just like, nah, not them. Jesus intentionally takes parables and makes sure they get it. And then the Pharisees, the kind of intellectual savants, the ones that are writing the, all the books, the ones who are enlightened, the ones who have it all figured out, they don't get it. And Jesus tells parables and they meet him with ridicule and scorn because they know better, because they're arrogant 
because they've taken an intellectual one-upmanship and they've tried to approach Jesus like that and Jesus tells parables to humble them. So it's very, very interesting to see because that's, that's literally what the disciples do. Jesus tells a parable and they're, they're like, hey, Jesus, like he calls them, can you explain that? <laughs> like, what? Right? Like, like there's, there's these moments where the disciples are like, I want to lean in and figure out what is exactly you are saying here, Jesus, because I want to understand what you're doing. And this is the same as the gospel today, church. Uh, Charles Spurgeon um, said, the same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay. Meaning that when the word of God goes out, it will harden some hearts and it will soften and open up others. And that is exactly what Jesus does with his parables. And he does it on purpose. He, he leaves no doubt in the crowd's mind who is actually about Jesus and who is not. He leaves no doubt in the crowd's mind of what people's motives are when they come to Jesus. And it's no different for you and I. And this first parable we're gonna look at is gonna call us on exactly that. Why are you here? Why are you here? Like, what is your posture towards who Jesus is and what Jesus does? Not, not me, not my sermons, not how much you like them or how much you like me. I don't care. How do you respond to the word of God? Why are you even leaning in and, and coming to try to understand what Jesus says and who Jesus is? The parables over the next seven weeks are gonna do that for us. It's gonna help really refine our motives, our heart posture towards Jesus. And this is exactly, speaking of Isaiah, this is exactly why Jesus quotes Isaiah 6. And he says, those who have ears, let them hear. Anyone ever been confused by that? Just like, I don't understand what Jesus is saying when he says that, right? Okay, really simply, all that is saying, all Jesus is doing, that is just Jesus for if you think you have nothing to learn, you will learn nothing. If you think you have all of the answers and all of your stuff figured out about faith and doubt and certainty and science and God or no God or sexuality or eschatology or race and justice, if you think you've got the corner lot on all of that, you are not teachable and you will not be taught. That's all Jesus is saying is those who have ears, let them hear. He's not just saying like, hear me. He's saying, listen to me. Understand what I'm saying. And if you and I don't have ears to hear, our heart will become hard to the word of God. We will become apathetic. We will become resistant and rebellious to the word of God. And we will not learn. We will not be humbled. We will not grow. And we will not experience the joys of the kingdom of God. That's all Jesus is doing when he says that. That's all he's throwing out there for the crowds. Because the, in the crowds, there are the real and the fake. And Jesus constantly does it. Now, here's the thing. It's the worst marketing strategy ever, right? Like Jesus literally waits till there's the biggest crowds to tell his most perplexing sermons and, and parables, right? So like, like and then, and then the, in the black letters, there will be like, and many left not to follow him again that day. And you're like, but Jesus, you had like a prime audience. This was your TED talk. This was your moment to go viral. And then you started talking about people eating your body and drinking your blood, right? And the disciples like pull him aside. They're like, Jesus, you shouldn't have done that one. Like you should have preached a different one, right? Because it's, there's something perplexing about why Jesus says what he does when he does. The parables separate the real from the fake. The parables separate authentic believers from counterfeit believers. And Jesus just looks at the crowds constantly and says, how many of you are listening? How many of you are actually hearing and understanding what I'm saying? And this is why this is important for us before we jump into this first one. Because today... 
Brothers and sisters, we're conditioned to sit in our armchair and evaluate and critique everything else. We're not actually, we're not held responsible as listeners today because we're consumers. And so our, 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 we're conditioned every day, this is the script of our, of our culture, is that we sit in the seat of judgment and we critique and review everything, whatever resto we're reviewing, an Uber driver, uh, a movie, a new album, our, our friends' pictures or posts, whether I like them or mad face, I don't like them. And we've put us in the centerpiece, the locus of authority on critiquing and evaluating everything else. And Jesus flips it entirely on its head and says, no, you're responsible for how you hear. You are responsible for how you respond to the word of God. You are responsible for how you respond Sunday in and Sunday out. But here's what happens in our Western thing is that we just come away from Sunday and be like, oh, I liked Dustin's shirt. I didn't really like those songs. Did I like that sermon? How did that make me feel? Do I agree with things that were said in the sermon? Do I disagree, right? So then right away, we're just back in the, in the, in the driver's seat. We're the one critiquing, evaluating. I give that sermon four stars out of a hundred. That was a bad sermon, right? And we do it all the time. And Jesus flips it entirely on its head and says, are you listening? And what are you doing with what you hear? Are you a responsible hearer of God's word? Is it calling you to change? Or is it always everyone else that needs to change? Is it calling you deeper into community when really all you want to do is just sit and be Jesus and you? Like what response do you have to the word of God? How do you actively walk away when you hear the word? I don't care what context it's in, whether it's a sermon on YouTube, whether it's here on Sundays, whether it's studying with with someone in community, whatever it is. Every time the word of God comes at you, are you a responsible hearer? Are you doing something with it? Jesus is putting that right into our lap and saying, you do have a relationship with God's word right now, regardless of what you believe. But your relationship might not be a good one. And you are responsible for how you respond to God's word. And that says exactly what Jesus does with this first parable. It's one of my favorite parables probably because it's the meta parable, right? Like it's the meta one. He uses this parable to explain why he tells parables, right? So it's kind of like the key that unlocks the rest of the parables. And it's in Luke 8, and sometimes it's called the parable of the sower. I like more like the parable of the soils because the sower is actually not the main figure in it at all. It's actually the four different places that the sower throws seed. And so what this parable is gonna do for us is it's going to come at us and give us four options of how we respond to the word of God. And it's going to tell you and me what our heart posture towards who God is and what God says actually is, okay? Let's start in Luke 8, verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathered and people from town after town came to him, he told this parable. So see how that's interesting. He waited So there was like this awesome, huge crowd. He didn't just go tell his disciples. He used this as a moment to say, this is a prime audience because I'm going to separate the real from the fake. Then he tells this parable. Listen, a sower, a farmer, went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and birds came and ate it, devoured it. And then some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. It couldn't mature. And some, a third place, fell among thorns, weeds. And the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. And then some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold harvest of that. 
As he said these things, he called out and said, he who has ears, let them hear. Now this is really interesting because this is not a complicated parable, right? And you're dealing with an agricultural society that most people hearing this parable, they've heard stuff about Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's this wicked teacher. He's this like magnetic personality. He tells this story and I think the crowds would have been like, like, yeah, that's what seeds do. Like, that's what happens, right? Like, and they would have seen this hundreds of times. Just a farmer walking through, broadcasting seed throughout their plot of land. And of course, the seed's gonna land in one of those four places, right? It's gonna land in, the, so, so there's, there's this amazing kind of like, I sat with the weirdness of this this week. I think there would have been this moment of like, okay, right? Like, th- this Jesus, the one who's the anointed one, just told us the most basic story about seeds, right? Like, so there's this weirdness to it. There's, but there's something magnetic because it's either this guy's a knob and he doesn't know what he's talking about because obviously seeds do that. I'm out of here. Or there's got to be something else. There's something that draws me in because I'm going like, what are you, what are you saying? Like, like that's, that's way too simple. Like, that's the tip of the iceberg. What's happening underneath? Help me understand what that is. And that's exactly what the disciples do. That's exactly what women do. Surrounded by women disciples. And that's amazing. That's countercultural. It's revolutionary that he even has women following him as a Jewish rabbi. And they're the ones that shouldn't lean in and they do. The disciples and the sinners and the tax collectors lean in. Now here's what's interesting. Sometimes it's good to use our imagination and think where Jesus was. Now Jesus was just off the coast in Galilee. Now, what's most likely happening here is Jesus is standing within eyeshot, right, eyesight of fields, right? So not only are these farmers and agricultural people familiar with that because they grew up doing it on their farms, right? Us concrete dwellers, we got to think a little bit better, right? But it's likely that Jesus is telling this story and pointing at the fields. And just imagine with me for a second, maybe there's actually a few sowers in the distance, walking through their field, throwing seed. So it is so simple, yet so profound what he does here. And it's a familiar picture, but it's one that he uses to drive home something that is very unfamiliar for his crowd. And they would have connected with it immediately. And the farmer, again, how you, it's called the broadcast method of seeding. They'd have a, a bag of seed on their shoulder, and they would literally just walk and do this, and throw, like, copious amounts of seed. And so naturally, in a plot of land, they didn't have fences. They didn't use fences and guardrails. They used paths, like walking paths, to block off their plots of land. So naturally, some of that seed would go out onto the, onto the path. Some of it would land and not grow. Some of it would land in healthy soil. So this is all just so familiar and so mundane, yet then Jesus turns the corner and explains it. And right away he comes out of the gate and he starts to explain his disciples come to him. Okay, verse 9 through 11. Disciples come to him and they say, what does this parable mean? I love that they even ask it because they know it means something. Because they know Jesus. They know what he's about. So they come to him and they ask him, what does this mean? He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables. So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And then he starts to explain the parable and he starts by saying, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Okay, pause, we'll stop there for a second. The seed is the word of God, okay? Now understand what Jesus has also been claiming about himself. What has he been claiming? 
that he is the word of God, that he is the exact imprint of the nature and character of God. So this is not new. He, they understand this. It's not the words of God. It's not the, the kind of opinions about God. It's the word of God that is going out as seed. Here's why this is important. This says a lot about the nature and character of God. It says a lot about the sower being generous with how much he throws his word out to anyone and everyone that is willing to lean in and hear. That our God is generous. That our God desires all people to lean in and, and hear and understand. But that some will not. And the farmer that's pictured here is generous, not skimpy, right? And this is, again, this affects how we think about what we have, what God has given us. He's not targeting, like, he's not Salt Bay walking around targeting only the rich soil, right? Like, like he's literally, he's walking through, throwing his word everywhere, and he always has been. And the good news is that he still is. That God is a generous God. That he's going out into the world, and he's casting his word and inviting everybody to lean in and understand and know and experience his goodness and his grace and his mercy. And that is good news. And so right away from the picture of the sower, there's already something kind of countercultural and revolutionary happening there. And then Jesus goes verse by verse, and we're just going to go through the four different soils, the four different places where the seeds land, and we'll unpack a couple things. First, he says, well, the path... The pathway, the stuff that lands on the path that's trampled and eaten by birds. In verse 12, he says, The ones along the path are those who have heard, so they've heard. But then the devil, the enemy, comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they might not, and this is the the key, believe and be saved. That they may not believe and be saved. Now this posture, this heart posture, is one that is hard-hearted. Those paths, those walking paths would have been hard. You couldn't penetrate them with the seed. The seed would not penetrate the soil because they've been so trampled on. And birds would just come and eat them. Right now, Gabriel is obsessed with birds and he's putting bird feeders everywhere. Uh, I won't be surprised if we end up with birds like in our house just because he puts so many bird feeders everywhere, right? But those birds, man, they talk about devouring seed. They devour that stuff. doesn't matter where that stuff lands. They go after that. And that's what would happen on these, these pathways, these walkways in between fields. So this heart posture, Jesus starts to unpack it for us. He says they do hear. They hear the gospel. They're just kept from believing and being saved. So these are people that not, they might not even be against hearing the word of God. They might not even be against, no, the Bible's cool. It's cool for you. Do your thing. That's cool. Not against it or anything. But they're not saved. They're not impacted. Their lives are not changed by the word of God. And maybe even more than that, there is a rebelliousness to them. There is a hard-heartedness. And it's information, it might be helpful for you, but it's not transformation for me. That's this heart posture, that's this soil. I ran into the fool in Proverbs again. The fool has no delight in understanding, but only in expressing their own heart. I think this is a verse that's in the background for Jesus here. He's like, you're, you're a fool. You're a fool, and if you don't have ears to hear, you will not hear. If you're not willing to be taught, you will not be taught. You will not learn. That's this heart posture. And really important... Notice that he mentions the work of the enemy, the work of the devil. Notice when the birds come. The birds don't wait for the seed. The birds only come after the seed has been thrown, right? So, and then he shifts that corner and says the birds are like the devil. So just like in the garden, when does the enemy show up into the story? After the word goes out. And the enemy of the garden is the same enemy today. The enemy's target is not you. It's not me. It's not our kids. It's not our churches. It's not us doing our religious thing. It's not us being good people. The enemy's 
job and only aim is to pluck the word of God out of our ears and hearts. Anything to distract you and I from the word of God. Anything to keep it away from us. And the hiss of the garden of did God really say is the tactic of the enemy. And that's our core problem today. It's that God defines what's right and good and true. And then we go and define what is right and good and true for ourselves, and it absolutely crushes us. And notice that the devil doesn't show up until the seed is sown, until the word goes out. Listen, church, some of you didn't even know the enemy was real until you started to pay attention to Jesus. Until you started to lean in and want to learn more about who God is. His main work, his main target is us knowing and experiencing the beauty of God and his saving power through his word. And Jesus makes that very clear. And he's talking specifically also about himself as the word. That if the enemy can get rid of Jesus, he gets rid of the plan of redemption. Gets rid of salvation for all people. So here's what this means for you and I practically. The enemy doesn't need to work to keep you from attending church. Doesn't need to keep you from praying general prayers to a cosmic power out in the universe. Doesn't need to keep you from being Christian by association or being a good person. Why? Because you can do all of those things and not experience the power of the word of God. You can do all those things apart from experiencing the power of the word of God. You can, and we do. And I think, again, C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters talks about the, the, the demons. The demons say that our best work is done by keeping things out of people's minds, not putting stuff in. I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. We saw it last week, right? Distraction and noise is the domain of the enemy. It is the kingdom of the enemy. Just distraction. Just enough to distract us. How is the enemy working to distract you right now? Like right now, like in this moment. (laughs) But also just in life right now. To take attention away from who God is. To take attention away from maybe something that God had done in you in the past. And it's not, it's, it's it's just not there anymore. There's an apathy, there's a, there's a coldness, there's a coolness, there's a hard-heartedness. The enemy is keeping you away. And last on this point, I saw this crop up a lot this week. Hear me lovingly. God is not speaking to you when your Bible is closed. And so often we're like, I don't know where God is. Where is he? He's not speaking. And your Bible is closed. Well, the word of God is plucked from your life. And then you're wondering where God is. Well, he's not there. Because because the word of God is not there. If your Bible is closed and you are not in community around the word, God is not speaking to you. He's not changing you. He's not growing you. He's not encouraging you. He's not calling you. He's not giving you ways to be obedient. Because you're not listening to him. We need to fight for this. We need to fight so that the word is not plucked from our life. That's the first posture of the first soil. Second, see that Jesus mentions in verse 13. And the ones that land on the rocks are those who, when they hear the word, they hear it as well, they receive it with joy. So there's something that happens right away. But they have no root. They believe only for a while. And in a time of testing, they fall away. This one's very interesting. Uh, no good farmer with their salt would have rocks in their field, okay? So don't, I know sometimes it's hard, it's like lands on rocks. Why would a farmer have rocks in their field? Well, they wouldn't. They did a lot of work to get rocks out of their field. What this is saying is that some soil, you don't know that there's bedrock just beneath the surface until something starts growing, right? So something can take, and then all of a sudden you realize something's not happening. You dig down, you realize, oh man, I mean, you live in Il Perot or Pancor, it's just like, why are there rocks two inches under the soil, right? Like, and that's it. That's this. 
It's that something takes, there is evidence that someone has heard, there's joy in even receiving the gospel, but then they never grow. It's temporary or it's emotional. That there's a joy, there's a burst of celebration, but then when things get real, they realize their faith is not real. That's this heart posture. This heart posture is shallow. It's superficial, it's temporary. It's people who are actually really excited to follow Jesus at first. They devour scripture. They're reading Calvin. They're praying for everybody everywhere. They're sharing the gospel with all their coworkers and friends. They can't get enough of Jesus until things get real. Tests come. Jesus kills their buzz because they realize that Jesus wasn't along for their ride. And that following Jesus, that there's actually a cost to it. And if there's no cost to following Jesus in your life, you are probably not following Jesus. And that's this heart posture. There's no root. They believe for a time, and then when testing comes, it shrivels up and dies. Now, that's the key word there. It's, um, it's test, right? Remember when we did James last year and we looked at trials and tests? James unpacks this a lot. But listen, like we all like things that work, amen? Like anyone? Uh, last night, my, my, I'm, I'm sitting in a quiet room and I hear like a sizzling. I'm like, what, what is that? Like is something about to blow up? Am I gonna blow up? Uh, am I gonna go meet Jesus? Like what, all these things are going in my mind. And I look and my USB port in my hibernating laptop is smoking. Like the fires of hell possessed my, my computer and it's smoking, right? So I'm just going like, this is bad. I've heard about things exploding, killing people. Okay, this is bad. So anyway, it's not, it's not anymore, but my USB port is broken. And that is very frustrating because we like things that work. And here's what trials and tests do to our faith. Prove whether it works. Your faith and trust in Jesus isn't proved when everything is nice. That's easy. That's settling. Your faith in Jesus is when trials come. Like a, a windstorm to test the roots of a tree come. You have a little seedling that grew and a first windstorm comes and knocks that baby down. Why? The roots weren't strong yet. And that's all throughout the Bible. This testing, this idea of testing and proving whether something is authentic. Whether it's real. And James 1 says it, right? Trials of many kinds. So let me ask you a question. It's a really important question that most people are not asking. How do you know that someone is a Christian? How do you know? What's the metric you look to to see whether someone's faith is real? How do you decide whether your faith is real? 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, put yourselves to the test to see whether you are in the faith or not. In our Western context, we don't do this. It's actually the opposite today. The I believe in God, or I'm a Christian, just saying that out loud, or I go to church, or whatever it is, that passes as, oh, okay, all right, you're a Christian then. Jesus literally just said, your faith is not exposed by any of those things. Your faith is exposed by how you respond to health crisis, to tragedies, to financial challenges, to a loss of loved one, to, to marriage struggles, to purity issues, to conflict, to stress, to disappointment, to fear. Your, your faith is tested by that, not, I'm a Christian. I was baptized. I said a prayer. I grew up in the church. None of those things make you a Christian. And so Jesus is getting at that. He, I mean, John Wesley, I remember John Wesley saying, we should be rigorous in judging ourselves and gracious in judging others. And we do the opposite today. 
We are rigorous at judging other people and not ourselves. And scripture calls us to put ourselves to the test to see whether we're even in the faith. And I just love that. Faith, a crisis of faith is actually something that all of us need <laughs> because we need to actually examine whether we're in the faith and whether our roots are deep or whether we're around because we thought Jesus was just gonna upgrade us and come along for the ride. So this posture, the second one, so as soon as they start following Jesus and their Christian life costs them something real, they're gone. We're gonna look at this next week more, the cost of discipleship, what it actually is the cost of discipleship. Could be their job, could be their career, gone. Could be sleeping with their boyfriend or their girlfriend because they're married in God's eyes. It could be a reputation because someone's gonna come to you and say, you don't actually believe that, do you? Or you realize that community and relationships are hard work and not just on a platter for you and about you. Or that giving and living generously means less for you and more for other people. All that stuff, those are tests and trials to show you that your faith is not real. And Jesus is lovingly warning us against that. The third heart posture is the weeds and the thorns. Listen to verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, that's just like weedy soil, they are those who hear. So again, they also hear. But as they go on their way, underline that, that's really important. They go their way, okay? They are choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and they do not mature. There's no fruit. Now, this one's really important too. We could spend a whole sermon on it. I won't. But these you know, when you, when you broadcast seed, they need to be cared for, right? Soil needs to be healthy. They need, you know, weeds need to be pulled out or else the weeds will take the nutrients from the potential vines and, and roots of that thing that we're trying to grow. And that's exactly what happens here. Uh, every green thumb knows that weeds grow faster than plants, right? That's what makes them weeds. It's like, how, why do they grow so fast, right? They grow so fast because they're parasites is what they are. They take the nutrients from the roots of the thing that actually needs it to blossom and harvest and have a fruitful um, return. That's exactly what happens here. And so this heart posture is someone who is preoccupied and distracted and perpetually immature. And I would, I would venture to say that is most of the church in the West today. That this belongs to people who hear the gospel, they receive it, they actually, they move towards it. Like there's something about Jesus that they actually want. They want to live for him, but they're way too wrapped up with the stuff of this world to produce any fruit that actually matters. Like, like it, just, it just doesn't matter what you do. Like, you, you, oh, look at my car, look at my this, look at my education, look at my, that doesn't matter. And so, so it's immature, it's preoccupied with things. And notice Jesus says three things that they're preoccupied by. These are three weeds Three thorns that come at you to choke out your faith. Number one, it's cares. Just cares of this world. Just worries. Just constantly. Things coming at us. Now here's what's key about this. Listen, this is really important. Good things can distract us from the most important thing. Okay, remember Martha, right? Martha was not doing bad things. But Jesus called her what? Distracted. She's distracted. She's preoccupied with all sorts of stuff. That's not even bad stuff but it's stuff that keeps her from fully being fruitful and mature in the things that are really most important. And that's exactly what Jesus says to Martha, doesn't he? You forgot the good portion. Like, it's me. Like, like you didn't come to me. So good things can distract us from the most important thing. And that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. Some of you are way too preoccupied with things that don't matter <laughs> and, and aren't important. You're gonna look back five, I hope you will, five years from now and be like, that was dumb. That was really dumb, like that I lived my life and gave that much time and energy to that. Hindsight's always 20-20 and gives us clarity, right? And that's this. 
Jesus is saying you're just so wrapped up with the cares of this world. And he's not even like being like you're evil and wicked and sinful. He's just saying you're just so distracted. You're just so preoccupied by things that don't, don't matter. I've seen this as a homeowner, okay, because I can do my own work in my house because I grew up with my dad doing that. I find that I'm so preoccupied sometimes with what next job I can do in the house. And then I realized like, wait, I've given way too much mental energy to that thing, right? And that's not a bad thing. I want to, I want to put my door frames on. I want to put a new bathroom door on. Like, those are good things. My wife would appreciate the new bathroom door, right? Those are good things. But good things can distract us from what's most important. That's what Jesus says here. The second thorn, the second weed is riches. Now go back and listen to our series in the spring if you want to hear more about what Jesus says about this. But Matthew, in his recording of this parable, calls it the deceitfulness of riches, he adds deceitfulness. That's just a lie, right? And what Jesus does constantly, he turns the good life on its head, right? Constantly turns it on its head. And Jesus teaches more about money than any other topic he talks about, except for the kingdom of God. And often, with his parables on the kingdom of God, it's about stewardship. So he's constantly coming at us and saying, your life is going to be made up of what you do with what you have. So don't live for what you have. Right? So this is always a signpost of our heart. And Jesus warns us over and over and over again. What you and I do with what we have shows us what we value most. And in Luke 12, he issues this warning and he says, take care, like pay attention, be careful and guard against covetousness because your life is not made up of abundance of things. We will all leave behind what we have here. And that's Jesus' point. To live for those things is to have a weed that comes and chokes out the eternal joys of the kingdom of God. And he calls it deceitful because, I think this is important, money makes promises it can't keep. Our materialistic culture makes promises it will never, ever keep. You get your first million, you need 10. You get your first billion, you need 100. It never ends because it's a heart thing. It's not a money thing. It's not about material things. It's what, about what material things say about your heart. That money does talk and it lies a lot. Money lies to us to tell us as a counterfeit God that it's gonna deliver what only God can. It's gonna promise to meet all your needs. It's gonna promise to give you a full and fulfilling life. It's gonna promise to make us happy. It's gonna promise to give us security and stability. And it can't do any of those things. That's Jesus' point. Uh, a quote that's worth using when we talk about this is Phil Riken, theologian and commentator. Just listen, it's not gonna be up here. Just listen to what he says about this. He takes all of Jesus' teachings on money and he just kind of brings it down to this. When we are worried about our finances, not trusting God to provide for our needs today and tomorrow, we are in love with money and it's power to make us more secure. When our lives are so full of work that we say no to Christian service, we are in love with money as it masters our schedule and time. When we find our thoughts returning again and again to something that we hope to buy, we are in love with money and it's power to get us what we think we want. When we spend more time complaining about what we do not have than rejoicing in what we do have, we are in love with money and depend on it instead of God to give us joy. When it seems difficult to give up something we want in order to give a full biblical tithe or make a sacrificial gift to gospel work, we are more in love with money than we are with the gospel and what it can do to change the world. And I think that's exactly why Jesus talks about this as a thorn, as a weed. And the third thorn, simply the pleasures of life. It's just stuff here, stuff now, stuff I like, stuff that makes me feel good. 
again, as a culture, we're entertaining ourselves to death right now, literally. We live for personal comfort and convenience and gaming and streaming and posting and all of that. After all, you deserve it, me time, it's all about you without any consideration of what obedience to God actually looks like in any of those things. That's living for the pleasures of life. That's having a true faith choked out by that. What's really crazy about that is that God doesn't answer some of our prayers because of this. James 4.3 says, you ask and you don't receive. Why? Because you ask based on your own passions. And God's gonna be like, no, that's dumb. Like, I'm not giving you that. No, no, but I really want it, God. And, and if you don't give it to me, I'm out of here. And then he's like, I'll tell a parable, so I'll help you out the door. Right, like that, that's the pleasures of life. And that's really interesting. And notice, I told you to highlight it. They go their own way. You saw that? They go their way. These weeds come and then they, this, this person, these, these people, this heart posture, they just go their way and they think that they can go their way and Jesus' way at the same time. And they can't. And fourth and finally, the good, healthy soil. Watch verse 16. Uh, 15, sorry. As for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word, they hold fast to it, actively hold it in an honest and good heart and they bear fruit with endurance. There's a patience, there's an endurance of the saints. There's a, these are fruitful and faithful hearers. If any of us know, farming is hard work, right? Like it's hard, sweaty, patient work, right? Farming is not, not what we'd want to do. Some of you grew up around farming or in a household of farmers and it is hard work, sun up to sun down. And there's no guarantee on the return immediately. And in a culture that's so obsessed with the return on an investment of our time, it's like, I'm only gonna give this if I get this back. Jesus is calling that out. And he's saying, that's not a fruitful and faithful hearer. That's not someone who endures to the end. That's not someone who understands and holds fast to the word of God and holds fast to who God is. And I think what Jesus is getting here is he's saying that the fruit of the spirit in your life is determined by how much we hold fast to the word of God. That you are not gonna grow in love and joy and peace and, and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control if we do not hold fast to the word of God. So, take care then with how you hear. Those who have ears, let them hear. These are the four different options that we have. There's no fifth. You're not an exception to the rule. You don't get an eighth place medal. This is literally our heart. One of these soils describes the present state of your mentality, thought world, and heart world towards the word of God. So let me ask as we reflect, how are you responding to God's word? How are you prioritizing it or ignoring it? Is it actually producing healthy fruit in you? Or is it someone else's problem? Is it someone else's responsibility to do that for you? What soil is your heart most like? Some, you haven't received the word. You never have. You don't know God and you don't want God. And your heart is hard to the things of God. Others of us, we're just shallow. We're just superficial. We're not growing. We're not maturing. We're stuck in perpetual immaturity and God just can't use us. Others of us, we're just so distracted by stuff by things, by us, by what we want, by what we need. We're focused more on going our way instead of Jesus' way. And others still, we're seeing fruit, but it's slow. <laughs> Keep going. There's an endurance to this. Have, more, have enough grace with yourself. Has the same, have the same amount of grace with yourself as God does for you. When you're a bonehead, 
when you need to confess, when you need to repent, that there is mercy and there is grace and there is a patient, long-suffering God who loves you and is for you. Let me pray for us. Father, we wanna be fruitful in what we do. We wanna be faithful, faithful hearers. We wanna apply your word well. We want that to affect things that matter. I just pray for each of us, especially as we go through this series, that, that spirit, you would convict our heart, that you would allow for reflection, allow us to really lean into Jesus' invitation to hear well, to truly listen, to truly understand, and then go and do something with that. We ask that you would use us to build us up, not break us down, not condemnation and shame and guilt, but encouragement an invitation to come and experience you and your goodness and your love. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.